You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. You may have noticed uh, that our talk this morning is titled, How a Holy God Views Sin. And I know that there is nothing that makes people more comfortable in church than talking about sin. So strap in, here we go. I don't know if you remember the first time you did something wrong. Uh, the first crime I remember committing is uh, when I was very young. I stole a pack of chiclets from a gas station. You know, like the little five-cent pack of gum. Uh, I stole some of those. And, uh, man, you are dreaming if you think Mom and Pop Zimmerman didn't load us all back into the van, drive us back to that gas station, and make me confess, right? But I think the first time that really sticks with me, the first time I, I feel felt guilty for what I did. Um, I mean, it was five or six, something like that. And my mom ran this daycare out of our home growing up. So there were always 10, 15 kids running around the house, and, uh, which meant that she had to kind of lay down the law. Like she had to draw a hard line uh, lest we burn the place to the ground. And uh, I don't know what I did. I, I don't remember if it was something that I said or I did, if it was a bad word or a bad action, but I did something bad. And word got back to my mom um, that it was either me or this kid named Reuben Redinger. Uh, she interrogated all the rest of the kids, apparently, and like waterboarding and whatnot, and found out it was either me or it was Reuben. And um, so she sat us down, and she said, all right, it's time to confess. Who did it, right? So she looks at first at Reuben, uh, who didn't do it, and she's like, was it you? And he goes, no, it wasn't me. So then she looks over at me, and she goes, Nathan, did you do it? And I go, it was him. It was totally him. It was that guy. It wasn't me at all, right? Like I bold-faced lie to my mother, the angel that she is, and I lied to her. And I continued to lie to her, and she was a you, and neither of us could confess. And eventually, my mom took my word over Reuben's because I'm her baby. And so she grabbed Reuben by the hand, and she took him down the hallway to the bathroom, and there proceeded to wash his mouth out with soap, Right? Picture Ralphie from the Christmas story. Anybody else's mom do stuff like that? Um, This is 2016. She would get sued for stuff like that today. But it was the 80s, so you could do whatever you wanted. And I I can still hear Reuben's cries coming from that hallway bathroom as his mouth bubbles with soap. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. Right? And I'm a bad person, (laughs) y'all. Like, that was awful. I can't believe I did that. I, if I run into Reuben today, like, I have to confess that was me. I committed the crime. I framed you for it. And whatever happened in your life after that is my fault. Like, if things went south, that's on me because I did it. See, sin is this thing that starts very young in us and can have lifelong impacts. So the question we're going to look at this morning is, um, how does a holy God view our sin? First thing to think about, though, I think this is important is, is, why does God need to be holy? Why, why do you want a holy God? Holy is sort of the, um, the go-to characteristic of God. It's the trump card of all things said about God. He is loving because he is holy. He is gracious and just because he is holy. His omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence all flow out of his holiness. Picture it like this. When Isaiah and Revelation talk about the one word that is said of God over and over again for all of eternity, the word that is used about him is holy. Holy, holy, holy. Not um, loving, 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 or gracious, 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 or 
great, 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 or good, 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 or all right, all right, all right. But, oh, sorry, that was stupid. Huh? <laughs> but the one word said about him is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But why does that matter? Why do you want a holy God? I don't know what you think of when you think of the word holy. I think, first of God, because I'm a pastor. But secondly, and I don't know if it has anything to do with me being a pastor, I think of donuts. Because, you know, donuts have holes. And then there are donut holes. And donuts are basically the most holy of all foods. Um, they're a gift from the angels, is what Aristotle said about them. I think I read that on the internet. And uh, I don't know where we're going with this right now. Here's the point, though, that we have all sorts of different ideas about what the word holy means. Uh, but it's one of those things that we kind of get the concept, we sort of understand, but, but if you were to put your thumb down on what exactly that means, what would you say? When we talk about God being holy, what we mean is that he is set apart from us. He is holy other than us. He is not like us in so many ways because he is pure. He is incorruptible in his nature. He is right and ever true, that he is unchangeable. That he is not like us. He is holy. Um, and here's why you want that. It means that he can be trusted. It, it means that he is always going to be right, and he's never going to change on you, and a holy God can be trusted wholly. And a holy God is better than a good God. See, I think a lot of people think they want a good God. But what we mean when we say that is we want a God who is good to me. But good is subjective. What is good to me might be bad to you, or what is for my good might be for your bad. Let's imagine it like this. Uh, let's say next March, um, Michigan, my team, is playing Kentucky in the national title game, right? Because they're basically the same kind of level of program and when it comes to basketball. <laughs> Those laughs were a little loud. <laughs> so let's say Michigan and Kentucky, this is imaginary. Let's say they're playing for the national title game, and um, I pray to God, God, be good to me, let Michigan win, right? And y'all are praying, like, God, be good to me, let Kentucky win. But, but either way the game goes, whatever happens, one will be for my good. Either Michigan will win, and it'll be for my good, or Michigan will lose, and it'll be for my bad. But, but God can't be good to both of us at the same time. You don't want a God who is just good, though God is good. You want a God who is holy. And it's precisely because he's not like us. Can you imagine if one of us were God, if we were chosen to be God? How awful would that be? Imagine... Imagine if Tina from accounting were selected to be God. Tina who loves Mondays and cats and doesn't need coffee because she's naturally a morning person. We hate Tina. Like, uh, you don't want to live in a world where Tina is God. But God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. His ways are higher. His thoughts are higher because he is not like us. And he sees the end from the beginning. He knows who we are. And he stands outside of time and can tell us what is going to happen. Which is why that what God says, what God does, can be trusted. Because he doesn't change. Because he's always right and always true. But you are unholy. Uh, we, none of us, are holy. Even the most holy among us are sinners. I remember I had these uh, two friends in college who told me about this conversation they had with one of our professors. Now, this professor was like 80-something years old, uh, like, you know, walks with Jesus kind of guy, like the wisest, most peaceful man. Like, uh, do you know anybody like that that's just as holier than everybody else you know? Like, 
He's not the son of God, but he's probably his nephew or something because they're clearly related. You know, like, and so they thought, does this guy, like, even sin anymore? Like, he's that, is that what it looks like to arrive, to just get there as a Christian? So after class one day, they went up to him and they asked him, you know, um, Prof, uh, do you struggle with anything anymore? Like, does temptation even bother you at this point or has the devil just given up trying with this one, right? And so the professor thought about it for a second, and then he sort of looked off into the distance and abashedly said, well, boys, it's the ladies. It's those pretty ladies. <laughs> to which my friends were like both shocked and disgusted, because gross, he's like 80,000 years old. That's nasty. We're sinners, and if you're new, um, and you thought this was a church full of only good people who only ever did good things, I'm sorry, you got the wrong church. That ain't, that ain't us. Um, well, we're going to talk about your sin, our sin, in a minute. But first, I think um, we need to answer this question. What does a holy God do with sin? If this God is so pure, so incorruptible in his nature, so mighty and powerful, what happens when this pure, holy God meets sin, meets acts of evil, meets, meets corruption? Make this clear, God does not punish sin. He annihilates it. He obliterates sin. John 1, five says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He, to say this, that there is no, no like shade, no like bad, nothing awful or evil or corruptible in his nature, that he is entirely pure and light and right, that he couldn't possibly be even a little bit dark. It's incompatible with his nature. See, it isn't that God is uh, he, gets, he gets mad, and he doles out punishment on sinners like he's the principal at some school for delinquents. Shout out Brian Station. But he is, just playing, Brian Station, my boys. <laughs> it's not that he gets mad and punishes, and it's that he obliterates it. That it cannot stand to be coexistent with him, that it can't be in his presence without being completely and utterly destroyed. His holiness, his love, his righteousness, Sin can't survive in that. It can't survive in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. And humans can't even survive in the presence of God. This is what Scripture tells us, that, that we can't stand to be in his presence because the holiness of our God would obliterate the sin in us. It would totally destroy us. Think Moses, when Moses asks to see God, God says, you don't even know what you're asking for. It would kill you, man. Think about the many stories in Scripture about the time when even for a single act of sin, a single act of wrong, God sends down his fiery wrath and justice and judgment on that sin. Not to judge us, not to be doling out punishment, but to obliterate the sin which is totally within his right, within his power, because he is true and pure. And whatever he sends down, we deserve. He, unholiness can have no union with a God like this. So let's look at you for a minute. It's been said that um, if you don't feel sinful, then you don't know yourself very well. I know that for me, uh, at least, the more honest I am about um, what I do and why I do it, the more sinful I realize I am. Um, that even when I act right, I often do so for impure reasons. Like, maybe y'all aren't this petty, but uh, <laughs> have you ever been tagged in a photo 
online and you go look at the photo and you're like, oh, I hate that photo of me. I have like 12 chins going on. I don't even know. I, I have those clothes. They look awful. And why am I trying to fit the whole hamburger in my mouth at once? Is that mustard? What is that? I don't know. What's coming up? Like, and you just go, I hate it. So what do you do? You go and you go untag yourself, right? Now, why do I do that? Because it wasn't me in the photo? Because that was a mistake they made? Like somebody else? No, because, because I'm vain, right? Because I'm prideful and I want people to think that I only ever look good and take good pictures and have good lighting. and Like just the opposite of truth, right? There is no one good among us, not one, is what scripture says, that even our righteous acts are like filthy rags. If you've read your Bible at all, you know that there are things that God commands us not to do, which we do. And then there are things he commands us to do, which we don't do. And then in the New Testament, Jesus raises the bar that says, even if you do the right things at the right times, but you do them for the wrong reasons, and your heart is still full of lust or greed, or you harbor anger against your brother, then you are guilty as you stand already. And my guess would be that uh, unless you've spent any time in a coma or something, that you haven't lived a single sinless day in your adult life. Neither have I. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. That's what Isaiah 59 says. This holy God can have no union with sin or sinful people. And you stand convicted whether you feel that way or not, whether you believe that's true or not. This is one of those things that has, it doesn't matter whether you believe it's true or not, it is. It's true whether you believe it or not, whether you agree with it or not, whether you uh, have heard of it or not. Um, I, I can get up here and tell you that I no longer believe in gravity, that that was a belief of my youth that I've outgrown, that I read some study that made me question all my belief in gravity. But when I get up here and step off of this stage, gravity will have its way with me whether I believe in it or not. And the same is true with our sin. You can, you can disagree with God about sin. You can take a different stance than he does on sin. You can, you can argue about interpretations and translations with God, but But the truth of the matter is that there will be a day when only one of you will be right. And he will decide your fate. God, as it turns out, is um, apple terms and conditions, right? Like you agree to the whole thing, whether you read it or not, you don't get to decide the terms. He does, because he's God after all, and you're not. He's holy, and we aren't. So God is holy, he destroys sin, and you and I are full of sin. And so, what does he think of us? What business do you and I, sinful people, have coming before God and expecting anything at all from him other than to be his slaves, asking for mercy? Because here's the deal, like the very God who gave you and I life, we have all looked him in the face and said, forget you, man, I'm going to do whatever I want. So now is the time in the sermon where usually we would talk about grace. Um, And rightfully so. I I mean, because of Jesus, uh, grace covers our sins and uh, all that. I think it's empty to talk about grace without sin. But I, I I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we just spent a few minutes on this concept this morning thinking about, okay, so even with the whole grace thing factored in, right? Like, even in light of that, God looks down at you and me. Um, his kids, his children, believers, and he sees us still caught in sin. What, what does God think of us when he sees that? Like, 
Um, in a world of grace, does my holiness still matter? Um, this summer, we took more students on uh, summer trips on our, to our camps and weeks of events and stuff than we ever have before, largely uh, thanks to you all. Uh, in fact, more than a 25% jump over last year's numbers, which is awesome. But it also means that there's uh, that many more kids with issues, that many more problems going on, that many more kids who need some counseling. And so most nights at our events, uh, at the camps we go to and stuff, I'm up till 1, 2 in the morning anyways, uh, talking with students about what's going on with them, right? And so for the first time in their lives, they're telling somebody about the things that have happened to them, that have been done to them, or the things that they have done, um, talking about the mistakes that they've made in, you know, areas of sex or um, drugs or alcohol or in relationships or with their parents or whatever the mistakes are. And, um, you know, wouldn't it be just really stupid? Like, wouldn't it be terrible if, if they came to me and told me, like, here's what I've done, here's, here's my sin, and I just said, you know what, it's all fine. Don't worry about it. It's all good. And you know what, um, just you do you. Uh, keep on keeping on and uh, have a good time with it. All right, see ya. Goodbye. Right, like, you would go, you're a bad pastor, Nate. Like, that's not good. So, so why is it that when it's my chunk that I'm being honest about, like my sin, that I'm like, well, I'm sure God's cool with it. I'm sure he's okay with it. I'm sure he's just like, you know what, you do you, Nate. Keep going. Let's sweep it under the rug and forget about it till later. Why, why is it different with my stuff than with other people's stuff? I don't know that we think about sin the same way that God does. So God's instruction here is this, in 1 Peter 1.16, he says, For the scriptures say, you must be holy, because I am holy. You need to be holy like, like God is. As Christians, have we become far too relaxed about our sin? As if it's no big deal, as if it's not still some condemnable offense against a holy God. See, when I read scripture, I don't see people going, you know what, it's not a big deal, God doesn't really care anymore, it's all grace, let's just sweep it under the rug. I see people who go, you know, my sin is awful, I am so sorry for what I have done. They tear their clothes, they fast, they repent, they pray for forgiveness for this holy God whom they sinned against. And when we choose sin, we, we, we go to the God who, who gave us the very opportunity to be alive, to, to choose him or to choose sin, and to his face, we have all chosen sin think about it um, like this uh, conceptually that okay so like if you sinned against uh, an ant and what would the consequences be what would the repercussions be you know what's he gonna do not much right he's an ant he can't do anything (laughs) but okay so, so let's say that you sinned against me what would happen then i'd probably beat you up because i'm real tough like that you know (laughs) Don't laugh. Uh, maybe I would call the police or a lawyer or something. I don't know. What, what though, like if you sinned against the president, what would the consequences be? Well, they take a jump, don't they? Because, because your offense is against a higher power. Now consider that every sin you and I ever commit is against the holiest, purest, highest power in all of existence. I don't know that we view our sins the same way he does. I, I was trying to, so, okay, so like just confession, like 
I find it sometimes easier to sin because I can't see God. Like, like I know he's not going to come talk to me afterwards. Like I know, uh, like judgment isn't coming right now, you know? But uh, I started, like, what if I could see? Like, what if the person I sinned against, like, it was somebody I could see? What if all of my sins, instead of being against an unseen God, were against my wife? Maybe you're not married. Maybe for you it would be against your mom or your dad or your kid or whoever it is that matters most to you. What, what, if, what if every act of pride or lust or greed or deception or anger, instead of being against an unseen God, was a blow straight to them like they felt it? Yeah, like it, it makes me sick to my stomach to think of hurting my wife that way. How much more when it's against a God who has loved me enough to die for me. God, I mean, God, forgive us for the sins that we commit, not just, not just for the sins, but for the arrogance in which we commit them. Because you're not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you, says Psalm 5.4. See, God seems to take sin very seriously in Scripture, and I wonder... Has that changed? Has he somehow become less offended by it? Has he learned to deal with it or be cool with it or just like forget it and sweep it all under the rug? Has that changed with God? Perhaps, uh, perhaps the folly of grace is thinking that God no longer cares about sin. We, uh, at least I, we like to read our preferences into what God says about sin. That God really meant what he said about murder and about stealing and, and those things. But, but when it comes to the stuff that I struggle with, like God, did God really mean what he said about, about sex outside of marriage or drunkenness or greed or material? Like God, sure, he was serious about those things, but these things, um, not quite, like just more suggestions really, you know what I mean? Like, like imagine this, that there is a group of people who claims to know the supreme being of the universe. Like they claim to have had interaction with him. Not just that, but that this supreme being loves them. He's all-powerful and all-knowing and he controls everything and he loves them. And that he sent his son to be with them and that he gave them this book which tells them, here's who I am, here's my nature, and here's how to live as followers of me. They claim that all of this is true, except, you know, in the book, like, he got a couple of things wrong. Like, like some of the things he said weren't as, you know, uh, more like suggestions. Some of the stuff he really meant, but other things, he couldn't quite see where 2016 was going to go. He didn't know where culture was going to go. And so like, he was off a little bit. Those things, more like suggestions. Well, you would say this, that um, those people don't really believe in an all-knowing God, do they? I wonder if we haven't gone, you know, um, I believe God and what he says, except, you know, culture sort of moved on these things. Wouldn't it be smart if we moved too so that people wouldn't be offended by this God of ours? So this holy God, he, he looks down and sees people tolerating sin. What, what does he think of us? Um, before school started, uh, two days before school started, I decided, like, you know, we should go and do one last fun thing before my son Cole, he's going into third grade, before he goes back to school every day, so let's go do one last fun thing together, you know. And, and so um, it's Monday, I go to him, and we strike this deal. All right, so Cole, if you can be good for the next day and a half, tomorrow night, 
after I get home from work, we'll go to Malibu Jacks, which is like his favorite place in the world to go, right? And so he's super excited. Yeah, we got a deal. And I'm like, okay, but you got to be good. You got to help out mom. You got to be good to your brothers. You got to take care of, like, I mean, best behavior, right? He's like, okay, I got it. So we strike this deal. He goes into the playroom to play with his brothers, Hudson and Max, who are three and four. And I'll listen, like, Hudson and Max are annoying right now. Like, I say that as their father. I'm allowed to say things like that. But they're at this stage, right? Like, so Hudson is doing the mimicking thing all the time, the copycat thing, right? And not just to Cole and stuff, but he does it to me, which is a mistake. So, like, uh, for example, the other day, um, he did something and he, you know, whatever, and then he heard his brother Max, and I was like, that's it. You know, like, I'm starting to lose it a little bit. I was like, all right, get your butt in timeout right now. Right. And so he's like mad that he got busted, but also like hurt, and he's starting to like whimper and cry. And so he runs over, he grabs his blankie, and he starts to head to timeout. But as he scampers over towards timeout, he's going, You need your button timeout right now. <laughs> right? And I just about ended the child, right? <laughs> you know? So, I mean, like, that is the world in which Cole is trying to be on his very best behavior. And so we strike this deal. He goes into the playroom, and it is less than 30 seconds later, I promise you. He goes in the playroom. I turn to the kitchen. I start to talk to Sarah. I look back to the playroom. Cole has his hand in a fist, his arm cocked back, and he's raining down haymakers on his brother, right? Side note, uh, if you survive in a house with three boys, they'll survive pretty much anything. And uh, if you survive in a house being the mother of my three boys, um, you will be richly rewarded. Not by me, because I work at a church. But Jesus is going to get you something real nice, Sarah. He's got something special, I promise. Uh, So, back to the story. So, like, it's been less than 30 seconds, right? Cole's already broken the deal. He's already hurting his brother. And I go to Cole, and I'm like, man, dude, you didn't even make it 30 seconds. Like, we we had this thing, like, we had a deal... And, and there were all these benefits out in front of Like, we were going to go to Malibu Jacks. It was going to be a big deal. We were going to have a great time. Just you and me having fun. And, and I'm, like, I'm bummed for you now, man. Like, you ruined it. Like, what was the point? My parents used to say this, and I hated it. Um, I'm sure you know the phrase, too. But I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Oh, isn't that the worst? Like, manipulative guilt trip. Like, you know, like, you're like, so much, right? But I found myself thinking, um, like, I'm not mad. I get it. I get that your brother's annoying. I get what you want. Like, but I'm disappointed. You know, I I thought, Cole, we were doing better with this stuff. I thought you were getting along better with your brothers. I thought you were maturing and growing up a little bit. I thought, you know, we laid this good thing out in front of you and gave you opportunity to, like, earn it. And now... And now for a moment of anger, for a moment of mistake, you, you've given that up. Like, disappointed. I'm bummed for you, man. I, I, I'm, honestly, I'm bummed for me too because I'm human and I like go-karts. Right? I'm not a monster. And I wonder if, if God isn't thinking something like that with us, you know? That he looks down at, at Christians caught in sin and goes, man, uh, I'm not mad because... I've removed the sin from the sin as far as the east is from the west. I've taken care of all of that. But, but man, am I disappointed because I thought we were doing better, Nate. I thought you were growing. You're in your 30s now. When are you going to mature? When are you going to grow up and stop, stop with this stuff? Like, like I, I had so much out in front of you, so many benefits, and, and now you're forfeiting them because of this moment of weakness. Like, I thought we were doing better than this. And I want better for my son, you know? So there is this holy God who annihilates sin, and you and I are sinful people, and, and I think he looks down 
I think he is disappointed at the price you and I are willing to pay to hold on to our sins. The truth, the truth about your sins if you're a Christian is that they are no longer counted against you. Um, Habakkuk 1.13 says this about God. It says that your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. And the idea here is not that like God is afraid to look at the nasty stuff you do, that he like, doesn't want to see naughty stuff. Like He's afraid to like, really face all it is that you are and I am. But instead the idea is that God goes, I see exactly who you are and what you've done, and I see the nastiest, worst, most awful places on this planet, and that is where I dive in. And instead of God hiding or being ashamed or learning to be cool with your sins or changing his stance on it or overlooking it, instead what God did is God paid for it. He paid dearly for your sins. Colossians 2 says it like this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is that you just followed the desires of your body, God made you alive with Christ. And he forgave us all our sins. The sins you committed in the past, the sins you're committing now, and the sins that you will commit, God has already paid for every one of those having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, Satan and his demons, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Love that last line. He made a public spectacle of them. It's not that he was afraid to face them. It was not that he was afraid to like, he, that they would be seen, that they would shame him or you. That instead, what God did is he drug out your pride, your lust, your addictions, your idolatry, every da- bad and evil thing about you. He drug it out into the public square and in the middle of town and he beat it publicly with the cross. And then he carried each and every one of those sins to the pit of hell, paid for by the blood of Jesus. So here is what you do if you're a Christian with your sins. You repent of them. God's grace drives us to repentance. It's what uh, caused you to first receive grace, but from that point on, the overwhelming kindness found in God's grace drives us back to repentance over and over again. Um, Not shame. It's not it. It's not guilt. It's not, it's not hiding, it's being honest and saying, these are my mistakes. Repentance is the laying down of pride and going, I know I'm not all good. Can't every one of us say that? I, I know I'm not all good. Eugene Peterson says it like this, repentance is not an emotion. It's not feeling sorry, feeling bad for your sins. Repentance is a decision that I will stop choosing this instead of God. That I will stop choosing that instead of you. This morning, I think, um, I think we all have some repenting to do. Scratch that. I, I know. I know we all have some repenting to do because the bar, like God doesn't grade on a curve. The bar is not, are you better than your neighbor? Are you better than Nate? No, the bar is perfection. And not just in your actions, but in your intentions as well. So may the grace that compelled you to go to Jesus in the first place, compel you to return time and time again to his grace. This morning, uh, we're going to sing, and there will be people down front. And and here's what I want from you, is that if you have things to repent of, which is all of us, 
the things you need to confess, you need to just go like, will you pray for me about this? Um, these people would love, love to pray with you. If you want to just come down to the steps and fall down and go, you know, like, God, I need you. I'm not perfect, and I need your help. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Would you do that? If you have never repented, if you've never said, I'm wrong and you're right, I'm sinful and I need a Savior, then why not today? Would you pray with me uh, for a minute? God, have mercy on us uh, sinners. I'm worthy of you. Um, God, thank you for your holiness, that you are not like us, that you can be trusted, that you will always be right, always be true, and that we can run to you. God, forgive us um, for the arrogance in which we take our sins so lightly. We don't deserve you. We've done so many things to offend you, to be wrong. And you continue to offer us grace. We don't deserve that. God, forgive us. God, thank you for Jesus who made a public spectacle of our sins, who uh, beat them so that everyone could see your awesome might and power, the holiness of our God. And he raised from the dead to bring us new life. In your name I pray. Amen. One last uh, final thought. Why does your holiness matter? Uh, in an eternal sense, it matters very little. Um, you'll not be saved from uh, the fiery love and judgment of a holy God because, you know, you lived a solid life. You will only be saved by the grace of Jesus, by his purity and his righteousness imputed to you. Like, you only get in through him. But your holiness matters. It matters to the world around you. It matters to the people that God has placed in your path to receive his love and joy and patience and kindness and goodness. Like, here's the deal. Like, if people are going to see Jesus in you, then you have to live like Jesus. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, that, we should make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Uh, it's a sermon we could probably preach to our entire generation right now. But he continues and says this, And to be holy, for without holiness no one will see the Lord. If you, if you don't live like Jesus, how will they see Jesus? How will they know God? The life of a believer is a billboard to the world around them about the character of their God, the holiness of God's people shows people the holiness of their God. 1 Peter 2.12 says this to us. He says, live such good lives among unbelievers that even if they tried to accuse you of doing something wrong, they would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Your holiness matters to the world, but it also matters to you. When Jesus paid for your sins, the day he made the public spectacle of them, he didn't just do it so you wouldn't go to hell someday. He didn't just plan for it to have future impact, but present impact as well. And the truth of the cross and the resurrection is not just that you are freed from the fire of hell someday, but that you are freed from the enslavement of sin now. How many of us, how many Christians are still shackled by sin still paying the consequences of sin that has already been defeated, already been paid for. So through the blood of Jesus and the power of his spirit, 
You are no longer slaves to sin. You don't have to let it control you any longer. Don't buy that lie. It does not have to win out. Your holiness matters because God is looking down at you and going, it's my son, it's my daughter, and I want better for them. I didn't just die so that they would not go to hell someday. I died so that they could live now. Not just freed from penalty, but but free to live now. So as we sing this morning, we're going to stand, and we sing as people who are experiencing the freedom of no longer being slaves to sin, no longer paying the consequences that Jesus has already died and beaten on your behalf. Will you stand as we sing now?